All right, so uh, this week we're going to have a big old bottle of spiritual milk. Um, and before you get too excited and you're like, I don't need none of that milk, I'm on to, to, to meat, uh, give me some solid food. I just want to remind you of this. Uh, the Apostle Peter uh, wrote like 2,000 years ago, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, by that by it you may grow up into salvation. And, and I don't think that Peter was saying, like, you're not saved if you need spiritual milk uh, like this, because, and I think he's already assuming that these are believers, they're included in the body of Christ, they're, they're newborn babes, right? But that the salvation that we have, the grace that God has given us, is something that we grow up into. And in order to, like, experience it and delight in it and to, to get the most out of it, uh, we, have to, we have to acquire some chops. Uh, unfortunately, I think that sometimes we get in our head that we we grow out of the spiritual milk phase and that it's only meat for us. Um, but I was I was shocked. I was arrested uh, by a guy this week when he made a comment about spiritual milk that just took me completely by surprise. And so I want to share that with you today. Um, and we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 3. And I'm going to challenge you as well to that uh, maybe you need a little bit more milk uh, than you're aware of. So buckle your seatbelt. It's going to be fun. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3. And I just have to say, this is like take number 20, because I keep recording this and realizing that I said something dumb, that I didn't quite understand it. And, and so I'm very much in a process of God continuing to teach me this lesson. So we're going to talk through 1 Corinthians 3. Um, but don't hear me saying like, <laughs> come on, catch up already, because uh, I feel like God has just been saying to me, uh, all day long and yesterday when I was trying to record this, like, come on, Andy, catch up here. Uh, you, you're still really an infant. Uh, so let's just read the text, okay? So Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And no, none of us want to be called infants. Uh, but this is a fascinating thing, right? Because he said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now, when the church in Corinth was planted, these people that Paul is writing to now, the Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth, and the book of Acts tells us that he stayed there for a year and a half. Okay, so for a year and a half, the Apostle Paul is leading these new Christians into greater and greater wisdom, and he's teaching them, and they're growing up under the tutelage, under the teaching of the Apostle Paul himself. And he says, as you might expect, of course, that he couldn't feed them solid food at first, right? But you would hope, like you would think that after a year and a half, they would have grown up enough that they could, they could handle some solid food. But in fact, he says, no, you're still not ready. I still can't give you solid food. And, and this is what really just caught me and sort of destroyed me last week as I was reading this book, which was, uh, in some ways, he addresses spiritual maturity, which is why it came up, uh, by Dave Roberson called The Walk of the Spirit, The Walk of Power. A friend lent it to me. It's, a, it's about tongues, actually, from a Pentecostal perspective. Uh, and there I go again. Okay. Um, I'll explain that thought in a minute. Uh, and, and so I'm reading it, and, and he says, basically, he says, the book of 1 Corinthians is all spiritual milk. And, and I, I, I read that, and I was like, that's impossible. I preached through it. I mean, there's all kinds of, like, difficult, deep topics and, and all kinds of stuff that it's hard to understand. How could that be spiritual milk? But then, I, you know, I realized this is what he was referring to. He says, uh, even now you are not ready, for you are still 
of the flesh. So the Apostle Paul says, after a year and a half of my teaching, you're still not ready. You're still in the flesh. And so I can't give you the real meat, the real food. I got to give you milk. And what he's doing right now in the book of Corinthians is he's teaching them. In other words, he's giving them milk because they're not ready for meat. The book of 1 Corinthians is milk. And I was like, oh my goodness. You know, we don't define this kind of material as milk. The, the topics about head coverings and spiritual gifts and the Lord's Supper and the resurrection of the dead and, and all of these things, like we don't typically think of them as, as, as spiritual milk, but apparently that's what Paul considered them to be. And I'm convicted, of course, because I go like, huh, if that seems like advanced food to me, like what else am I missing out on? And if if this is hard for me, then it means that I also am immature. Um, and, and when I look at then at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I start to see like, oh yeah, I do that too. So I, I, I stopped myself and I said, oh, there I did it again. And what was it that I did again? Well, what I did was I described this book as, uh, you know, as on tongues from a very Pentecostal perspective. In other, in other words, what I was doing was I was sort of like subconsciously, um, self-consciously maybe like distancing myself a little bit from a brother in Christ. Like, well, you know, he's very Pentecostal and I'm maybe like only charismatic and I wouldn't call myself Pentecostal, right? So I'm like, I'm trying to to distance himself, myself from, from one for whom Christ died, right? And who has taught me something out of God's word. And I'm feeling like on video that I need to, to somehow distance myself. Uh, and that's like, that's pride and division and strife in the church. And that's exactly what I'm supposed to be talking about today, right? So it comes out of me because it's in me. Uh, and I'm begging God, like, would you write this out of me? Um, so I want you to join me on this, on this journey. Paul says this. He says, okay, so how does he know we're still of the flesh? How does he know we're still infants? And what does that even mean? Well, to Paul, there is like, you have this, the, the flesh, the sinful human, like the, the pragmatic, practical, everyday flesh and blood, you know, dollars and cents kind of concerns of this world. And the world has a lot of wisdom in dealing with it according to worldly terms. But he says, God puts this new kind of life in us. He plants the Holy Spirit in us and he causes us to see and to interact and to think and to, to live in ways that are dramatically transformed and different from the world. And so we live not according to the flesh and its wisdom, but we live according to the spirit. Okay. And he says that there's evidence that you guys aren't living according to God's spirit. You aren't living according to the kingdom principles. You're living according to the world's principles, according to the flesh. And so he says, you're still of the flesh. Therefore, you can't go on to deeper things of the spirit because too much of the flesh remains in you. And here's what he writes. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? This is okay. So this is how the world works, right? It is a human way. It's not a, you know, terribly, you know, absolutely unconscionably depraved thing. It's just the normal, natural, human, sin-stained ways of living is the way the church is operating. Okay, so he says, you're still living not like members of the kingdom of God, but like members of the kingdom of this world. Okay, and that's the old way you lived. And so Paul has to give him some milk 
to help their spiritual like being develop in strength and wisdom. And he says the evidence of their immaturity is jealousy and strife among you. Or you'll see here the, the New English translation says dissension. Okay, the idea is like we've got people fighting against each other. Not just disagreeing, but, but it's personal. Okay, and so he says for when one says, sorry, when one says I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And ah, here's where it is. And he started here actually in in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, which we didn't read today, of course. Um, but he says, words come to him that there's some people within the church that are starting to, to form cliques. Okay, you've got some people who are like, hey, I'm, I'm with Paul. And, and then Apollos, after Paul left, Apollos apparently came in and teached and trained up the church. And some people are like, no, Apollos is my guy. And somebody's like, no, I like Peter's theology. And, you know, and somebody else is like, oh, me, you know, for me, it's it's the teachings of Jesus. And, and, uh, and so you've got these divisions in the church that are dividing them amongst each other. And he says, that's what the world does. Like the world always has to figure out who do you belong to. And in the, in the Roman Empire, there was this system of patronage, okay? And so there was this, uh, this arrangement where if you were just some, like a normal, everyday person without a lot of clout, you would find a patron, somebody who is, who is rich, who is wealthy, um, and, and, and they would become your patron, and they would give you, uh, they, would, they would throw their weight around for you, okay? So if you need something accomplished and you couldn't get it done, then your patron, they would put their name to it, and they would, they would make sure it happened. They, they had the connections. They knew them. And, uh, and they had a word for that in, in the Roman Empire. They called it grace. And they used the same word that, that Paul uses in his letters uh, called grace, where the patron would give you something. They'd do a favor for you. Some, they, would, they would do something for your benefit using their power. Okay, and then the expectation in this patronage system is that the client then, you, you would owe your patron something. Uh, you would owe them faithfulness. And the Greek word that they used is the word that we translate in our Bibles, faith. Okay, so the patron gives grace and the client responds with faith. And you would be, you would be, you would come like sort of under their banner and under their tutelage. Um, and so I th what, what Paul is saying here, or what he's eventually going to say, uh, is that what's happened is within the church, people are doing these like normal cultural patterns, right? Where they're like, whoa, I'm with this guy. I'm with that guy. They're my patron. Or, you know, in, in some strains of the church, right? like we talk about our patron saints, you know, the one who I'm under and they do favors for me. And then I, you know, I pray to them or, 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 or venerate them. And so there's this like whole system of, of underlings and overlings. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that that's not the way the kingdom of God works. Okay? You, you don't say like, I'm Paul's guy. You don't say, I'm Apollos' guy. Uh, you don't owe your faithfulness to Paul. You don't owe your faithfulness to Apollos. You, you owe your faithfulness to someone else. Okay, and that's that's what he's going to get here as he goes on. He says, because who is Apollos? Who is Paul? They're servants like you, right? They're not, they're not patrons. They don't have, you know, the spiritual weight to throw around to get you the spiritual life that you need. They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned each to teach. 
Ah, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, right? We did these things, but God gave the growth. And so the one who plants and the one who waters, they're nothing but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters are one. This is Paul saying, hey, me and Apollos, we're, we're after the same job, we're doing the same thing, and we'll each receive wages according to our labor, for we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field, God's building. All right? And so the message in, in, in Paul's letters is that Jesus Christ, God has given you grace through Jesus Christ. Right? He has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He has, he has put his name on you. Right? He has given, uh, he has used his power and his authority in the heavenly realms for your good, and he has forgiven you. And through the work of Jesus Christ, you've been brought, you've been reconciled to God. And then you owe your faithfulness. You owe your faithfulness not to the ones who he used as part of that thing, but you owe your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God through him. Right? And so he says, what you think is going on is that you have all of these little patrons, Paul, Apollos, Peter, whatever, building their own kingdoms, but what you don't get, what you don't realize is that that's absolutely mistaken. It's absolutely wrong. So in verse 10, then he goes on, right? He says, we're God's building. He says, so according to the grace of God given to me, right? This is what God did for uh, Paul, is he gave him these gifts of the Spirit and of his training and wisdom and opportunities. And he said, so God gave me this gift. And what I did with it was I, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And now somebody else is building on it, according to the grace God gave them, right? Right? But he says, let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so he says there is only one foundation. And what, you know, what is the milk here? Well, the milk is this. <laughs> We're in the flesh. We're infants because we still have strife and dissension and division and envy and jealousy and pride among us as Christians. And why is that? Because everybody seems to want to have their own system of sub-patronage, right? We might all, like, theoretically agree uh, that, that we're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and united with God through Jesus, but then we also want to say, but I'm a member of this tribe. I'm a member of that tribe. And sometimes we do it with, like, uh, denominations. We say, well, I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic, or I'm Eastern Orthodox, or I'm, you know, fill in the blank, I'm an Independent Baptist, or, um, and, and so what we, want, what we want to do is we want to say, like, well, this is the, the, the little guy that I'm under, and I owe my faithfulness to him. But here's the problem. Jesus warned us about that, right? Jesus said that no one can serve two masters, he said either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. That's uh, Matthew 6. And in that case, Jesus was talking about the pull between trying to please God and trying to get rich and saying you can't, you can't accomplish both. They're in conflict with each other. Uh, but the, the truth remains is that when push comes to shove, you're going to serve one master or another. And the Apostle Paul is saying, the master that you serve is Jesus Christ. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. And so you can't take those names on yourself or you're going to have trouble. Okay? Now here's the secret. 
here's where here's where I think uh, it starts to get crazy. So when we hear something like Ephesians 4, O your I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so Paul says, I urge you, right, this is what he wants, he urges us to walk worthy. And he says, the way that you walk worthy is with all of these things in your calling, right, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Okay, so he says to walk worthy means to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on with this list, right? He says there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your God, or your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. And sometimes we read this list and we go like, okay, there's only one way to heaven, right? That's Jesus. We know this. Uh, is that what Paul's saying here? Then he's saying, okay, so there's one Lord. That's Jesus. There's one faith. And when we read that, when we think faith, we think a set of beliefs. But remember, the, the picture of, of Roman patronage was faith was not a set of ideas in your head. It was a faithfulness to the one to whom you belonged. And so Paul writing to the Ephesians is saying, there's only one allegiance. There is only one tie of faithfulness that you are required to maintain in your identity as one belonging to the Lord. Right? So there's one Lord. He gets to tell you what to do. And there is only one faithfulness. And that is faithfulness, my friends, not to a doctrinal statement, not to a famous preacher, not to the head of a denomination, not to a denominational board, not to a historical, like, tradition system, but your faithfulness is to God alone through Jesus Christ. And then we say, okay, well, there's one faith. And, and instead of saying there's one call of faithfulness, uh, which is uh, faithfulness to God, uh, we think there's one correct statement of faith. And so we're all off to prove that our statement of faith is the one and that everybody else should join with our one because ours is the one. We read, there's one baptism, and then and then we'll take that some way or another. We'll say, oh, well, that means you should only be baptized once, or it will mean, well, only people baptized by our denomination have the right baptism, and the other baptisms, they're not the right one. But the reality is we're, we're called to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says. And so he's saying, there's not many different baptisms. There's only one. Either you're baptized into Christ or not. You know, regardless of whether the Lutheran Church, you know, and honestly, here now, <laughs> some others are going to disagree with me, but uh, I, I honestly believe this. He's saying there's only one baptism. There's not a Lutheran baptism and a Catholic baptism and a Baptist baptism and a Presbyterian baptism. And, and if you do it wrong, like, it won't count. I think he's just saying, like, there's those who are baptized into Jesus Christ and those who are not. Because when he says there's one God and Father of us all— Thankfully, we don't typically argue, well, like, well, the God of our denomination is the right God, and the God of your denomination is the wrong God, uh, because when we speak of the one God, we're referring to the God of Abraham, uh, who everybody, theoretically, in the, <laughs> in the Christian tradition looks at, and they says, this is the God of, um, 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the one who Jesus proclaimed was our father. And then he says, of course, he is the father of all. And so what Paul is getting at is he's not saying out of the many different faiths, of which some are better than others, uh, that you should make sure you pick the right statement of faith. He's saying if you're in Christ, you are a part of the one faith. If you have been baptized, you share in one baptism. If you proclaim Jesus as the Christ, you have one Lord, right? And you are worshiping one God and one Father. And so, if you will, Paul's statement is that you are to seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Note, he doesn't say establish the unity of the Spirit. We don't establish the unity of the Spirit. We seek to maintain it. Because the unity that is given by the fact that we worship one God and we are sanctified, we are made right with him, um, we, are, we are reconciled to him through one Lord, Jesus Christ, that we share in one spirit, that is our unity. It has been established. And it's only like fleshly, earthly people that think that unity has yet to be established. It's the fleshly, earthly ones of us that actually go about in an attempt to create unity. What we do is we destroy unity or we, uh, we, we work against unity. Um, you know, we, we think like, well, how are we going to be unified? And, and the answer is, uh, <laughs> the, the question betrays that we already got, we already got it wrong. The answer is, you don't create unity. You are unified. If you are in Christ, you are unified. If you are in Christ and you believe all kinds of terrible, heretical beliefs, you are still part of one body. You serve one God, one Lord, one baptism, one faith. And you're like, no, that can't be, Andy, you know. Do you realize what that might mean about this group of people or that group of people? Like, I'm not unified with them. Um, we have the truth, and uh, it's on our side of the fence. And if they want to come over to our side of the fence, we, we'd be glad to welcome them and be unified with them. But we can't be unified with people who believe these weird, bizarre, heretical things. And for 1,700 years, the church has been really clear that when somebody disagrees with you, the proper method to deal with that is to excommunicate them and anathematize them, you know, and tell them they're not Christians. And Or if, if the majority is right, then the proper way to deal with that is to separate and to create a new brand and to come up with a really Christian-sounding name. Uh, and, 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 then, and then we can have... Then we can. Then it can be clear who the real Christians are, right? Because they're the ones who share this other name, other than Christian, and it's and it's it's completely contrary to the spirit of Christ. Okay, let's go back to First Corinthians three. So Paul says, "Look, according to the grace God gave me, so God called him to this. He he laid a foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ, and then he says, let each one take care how he builds on it.'" So Paul is granting us that people can take this foundation with Jesus Christ and they can put garbage on top of it, okay? Some people are going to build with gold, silver, precious stones, but other people, he realizes, are going to build with inferior wood, uh, with straw, 
some of them, you might say they're building with manure, right? But he says, there's only one foundation, and that's Jesus Christ. And everything set on that foundation is a part of this church. But as we go to build it up, uh, he says, you got to be careful because uh, you can't, number one, you can't make a different foundation. So, the, the foundation, if you will, is not the denomination. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Uh, that is what Jesus builds his church on, is himself. Um, and, and I think the, the Catholics are totally wrong here when they think that Jesus looked at Peter and said, I'm going to build my church on you, because the Apostle Paul says, no, the, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. What Jesus builds his church on is the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the foundation of the church, right? And he says, whatever you build on that, someday, here's where it gets interesting, someday your work is going to be showed what it, what it is. Okay, oh boy. Um, so, uh, each day or each one's work is going to be manifest or going to be revealed for the day will disclose it and it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, so in the church, we're going to have disagreements. Uh, we are we are going to think people are wrong and we're going to want to say it graciously and and generously and humbly and acknowledge that we could be wrong. We're going to, we're going to disagree, okay? But the proof of what was built is not going to come from our hands. It's going to come on that day. It's going to be real, revealed by fire. And God is going to reveal the truth of what was taught and what was really true. And he's going to reveal motives of men's hearts. And he's going to reveal the faithfulness of the people who he has gifted and called uh, to build up the church. And something's going to happen. Okay? Verse 14, so if that work that is revealed, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, so that is everything tacked on top of Christ, if any of that survives, if it was true and helpful and good and glorious and right, then that person who did that work is going to receive a reward. Praise God. Hopefully, some of the work <laughs> that I've uh, done over the years, someday, hopefully, something is not going to end up uh, burnt. Uh, but I assume some of it is, uh, as with probably most people, uh, that something else is going to happen. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Okay, so there are people who are out there building stuff, putting stuff on the foundation of Jesus Christ that is not true and is not helpful and is not constructive and it, and and. and we're the ones who are tempted to like curse those guys and kick them out of the church. But here's what the Apostle Paul says is going to happen. He says, that person will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, do, do you catch this? Like if somebody builds worthless things on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ, then all of that will have been wasted. But the Apostle Paul says he himself will be saved. If you have the foundation who is Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And everything else might be a total loss. And it might be like, I got out through a house fire and everything got burned and it was all, everything I've worked so, so hard for is gone, but I'm alive and that's a good thing. 
And someday we're going to get to heaven, and that's how some people's ministries are going to be revealed. And that's how, you know, some some somebody's personal brand name and their, their denomination or whatever, and then they got so many followers to come after them and to say, well, I'm, I'm a member of this club or subgroup or whatever. Uh, the reality is, right, a lot of that is going to get burned up, but those people are going to be saved. And our temptation, our temptation is to say, well, no, you're wrong. Therefore, you're not a member of the body of Christ. That's wrong. It's untrue. It's untrue. If they're in Jesus Christ and they're preaching what we would, you know, say is unorthodox or heretical or whatever, um, if they're in Jesus Christ, all of their stuff, all of their preaching might be revealed as, as garbage and it might be burned up in the day, but that does not mean that they're not in Jesus Christ. Okay? That ultimate determination is one made by God. And so our, our tendency... Our desire to want to like purify the church and to keep out every last shred of any possibility of being wrong is this sort of like unreasonable, proud, ridiculous blindness that says somehow we've got it all figured out and and everybody who's wrong is is lesser and an outsider and we need to keep them away from us. Paul's message is that there's one church, there's one kingdom. This is God's field. It's his building. It's his sheep. And he is bringing them in. And you know who's the most tolerant of bad doctrine out of anybody in the whole universe? It's God himself. <laughs> so uh, last week, um, a friend of mine sent me a quote from this book, uh, The Night is Normal. I've not read the book yet. Uh, it's on my list. Uh, but one of the things of the author says in there is she says that God's mercy is stronger than his truth. And for me, being like, I, I, I want truth, I love truth, and I think it's ridiculous that you would say God's mercy is stronger than his truth. He, the, the reality is, is this. Um, God's mercy is stronger than his truth. Like, God knows what is true, and someday we will fully understand. But since the beginning of time, every single person who God has called his son or daughter in Jesus Christ has had some bad theology and has probably taught some bad theology to other people, whether from a pulpit or uh, in the quiet hours of, a, of an afternoon stroll, right? What we believe, we pass along to other people. And if God really uh, thought that the most intolerable, impossible thing to put up with in the whole world was bad doctrine-like, and that anybody who dares to ever speak something untrue ought to be immediately put out of the church or anathematized, like, we would all be zapped by lightning, we would all be killed, <laughs> we would all be destroyed. None of us, none of us are worthy. Um, and, and ironically enough, like, God sometimes uses our our wrongness uh, to accomplish his purposes. I was thinking about this today, right? So let's say that you're in a denomination and you're convinced that your denomination is totally true. They got everything figured out. And then, um, so I'll give you a for instance. I, I, I used to be a, a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church and I thought, E-Free has got everything figured out. And then uh, I was also told that the Catholics had everything wrong. And so if, the, if a Catholic comes to me and starts saying something to me, then in my head I just go like, okay, no need to listen because this guy doesn't know what he's talking about um, and uh, I've got nothing to gain here. Uh, and so because of my pride and prejudice, 
against Catholics. I wouldn't listen to anything a Catholic has to say. Now, there's some things in the Catholic Church that I think are actually insightful and helpful and, and more right than things I've believed in the past. I start to see glimmers of them as uh, now that I've no longer pastoring in an E-free church, and I'm more free to like listen to other brothers and sisters. Um, but I realize that like as I as I uh, read and as I sort through things and try to hold on to what's good and reject what's not um, from God, like I realize that I'm processing things and and uh, and I share some of these things with other Protestants um, uh, who who are who are similarly maybe like against Catholics. And they would say like, well, that's a really interesting point. I never, I never thought about it that way. And I realized like, oh, um, if there's a, a, if there's a truth in uh, the Catholic Church, then uh, for most Protestants to hear it, they can't hear it from a Catholic. And so they have to hear it from a Protestant who prior to that point was wrong with them. Uh, but because we have created these like little tribes and we only listen to people in our little tribes, uh, then um, God, God has to take people who are caught in error and he has to dribble some truth into them so that their peers will also hear. But then uh, what happens is once that, once that person who was an insider on the other group, once they get a sufficient set of knowledge, then often what happens is they'll leave that denomination. So let's say, okay, now I'm no longer E-free, now I'm going to join another denomination. And now all of the people who used to say, like, he's one of us, now they say, well, he's not one of us anymore, right? And they might even quote that verse in uh, 1 John that says, he went out from us, which was proof that he was never among us to begin with, right? And they say, so you shouldn't listen to him because he no longer agrees with us on everything. Uh, and so God has to use people within wrong tribes uh, to reach people within those wrong tribes because the people who have the wisdom are often uh, not listened to simply because they don't carry the same label. So where am I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> Here's the point. It's the labels that cause us not to listen to each other. And because we have those labels, God is patient with us in our weakness, and he uses our weaknesses to reach people who might say like, oh, just because you're a Protestant, just because you're a Baptist, or just because you're you know, a member of this council, then I'll listen to you. And God can use those things, but it doesn't mean those things are good or healthy, or helpful. And I think we're at this place in history um, where, where all of these labels, which were already being warned against, and they were being put forward as evidence of being in the flesh. Paul says, your, your eagerness to say, I'm with Apollos, or I'm Paul, that's proof of your spiritual immaturity. Um, those things uh, are 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 almost like taken for granted as good and necessary and helpful and 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 uh, beneficial features instead of bugs. Um, and so I've I've done some some talking with people about uh, the dangers of of defining ourselves according to doctrinal statements. And and pretty much everybody says like, but Andy, you can't have unity without that. How could you ever be unified without a doctrinal statement? And, uh, and, and it's like God just says, well, this is spiritual milk, my friend. Your unity isn't in the doctrinal statement. Your unity is in the fact that you have one Lord who gives you grace.
and you have one faithfulness, you have one uh, expectation of allegiance, and that is to God through Jesus Christ. Like, that is, that is your one faith. Your one faith is in Jesus Christ, and he gives you one spirit. And so he says, you are unified. If you would just stop fighting it, you would see it more. And if you would just recognize that you're children of one father, you would recognize it more. And if you were to live in a way that was worthy of your calling, you would spend far less time trying to prove who's in and who's out of your little body in the church. Um, and you would spend a whole lot more time uh, seeking to love each other and to listen to each other and uh, to help each other grow. So I talked about, you know, we've talked about denominations a fair bit, but it's not just denominations. Like I, like I said earlier, it's my tendency to say he's more Pentecostal than me or, or, or she's more uh, left-leaning or, you know, whatever. We use all kinds of reasons to uh, distinguish and to differentiate our ourselves from other people, almost as if to say, like, don't think of me as being tied to them. But that would never fly among my own children in my own household. If I ever saw one of them ashamed to be a sibling to one of their siblings and try to like differentiate themselves and say that's they're not one of me, that would that would greatly sadden me. Uh, I would correct that. And I think our Heavenly Father is looking at us and saying, quit trying to separate yourself from your siblings. Jesus died from all. You're all wrong, but you're all unified, whether you know it or not. You share in one spirit. So let's pursue that. Let's lean into that. And let's find ways that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Because you know what, my friends? We're infants. We're still infants. There's jealousy. There's striving among us. We're busy trying to judge whose work is going to be burned up in the fire someday. But that day we'll take care of it. So in the meantime, let's seek peace and pursue it. Let's speak truth. Let's pursue love together. And as we worship one God through his Son, Jesus Christ, uh, let us delight that all of this is possible because when God looks at our bad doctrine, he doesn't count us unworthy and kick us out. He just calls us into something greater. God bless you. We'll see you again here soon on the Apostles Mailbox. Mm -hmm.